Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. Happy almost September. Happy almost Labor Day, Simone. I know, man. Can you believe it? Summer has flown by. It's, I mean, they already have the Halloween stuff out. So, you know. I saw the candy in the store. Christmas is just around the corner. Do do your kids have their list for Santa Claus yet? Don't even start. You're stressing me out already. (laughs) You're stressing me out. Uh, Summer's almost to an end, but you went to the beach this weekend. I did go to the beach. You and my girl, Miss Winnie. Yes, uh, Winifred, the chow chow, and I went down to the beach, which happens to be. But you live in New Orleans. I do live in New Orleans. I live in a neighborhood called Holy Cross, which is right on the river. Um, and, you know, for a while, for most of the year, in fact, the river has been pretty high. Y'all did so levee inspections? We, you and Winnie Winfrey. and I did our regular levee inspections. We were there during Barry, you know, when things got a little precarious. Um, the water was getting a little close to the top of the levee, but didn't come up. Um, Her chow-chow fur was standing on end. Yes, Winnie was a little nervous, but um, we actually did a low water tour oh. uh, this this weekend. <laughs> um, the water has gone down. The river is, is, has lowered significantly. Thankfully, and what has merged is a massive beach. Was um, that there before? So there's always been a little bit of a beach um, that kind of looks out, that goes out into the river, you know, and you can see the skyline of the city. Yeah. Um, it's really beautiful, but it's never been this high before and this big, you know, and so it really kind of goes out into the, the where the river just was. Stay? Maybe I don't know, you know, like um, there, and then it's kind of on the side as well in the industrial canal. There were people out there with beach. <laughs> chairs and umbrellas you and they had were it fishing. On, you had it posted on social media. I posted it on Twitter. It yes, go to um, at Jacques Hebert and you, you can just name it. Yeah. You got a name for it? Uh, Holy Cross Beach. But yeah, so it was fun to go to the beach and we went, I think that was in fact, you know, Winnie's first time at the beach. So oh, was, Sand in her toes. Yes, sand in her paws. Thing. She liked it. I didn't let her go in the water but Ooh. mainly because I didn't want to clean up uh, you know, yeah. didn't want her to get all wet. But that was a good weekend. How was yours? It was good. It was busy. Last week was busy too. And so they had their monthly CPRA meeting. Um, it was another marathon, uh, went almost to one o'clock, but they had some very important things to discuss. Uh, first off, they did pay tribute to former governor Kathleen Blanco. Mm-hmm. Uh, she started the CPRA after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, and they had a very nice tribute to her both at the meeting and online uh, to recognize what she did for the state of Louisiana. And then they had an implementation update from Brent where they had some good information including highlighting uh, Weeks Marine's christening of their brand new dredge. We talked to Mm -hmm. Mark on the show previously, Um, but they had quite a bit of discussion also surrounding um, some recent articles that came out in the media. Um, They talked about um, a new partnership fund, and actually it's not new, it's old. They're bringing it back. Um, It's called the Conservation and Restoration Partnership Fund, um, and they are bringing that back. They have a million dollars to match with NGO partners. Um, even government entities. They have a million dollars to match with folks to get their uh, restoration programs on the ground. And they put out that call um, last week for people who want to consider proposing. Yes, no shortage of topics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's summertime, August, but it's certainly not slow on the no. coastal front. No, um, no, no, no. Busy week ahead. But... Yeah. Well, I'm so excited to have this next guest on. Yes. You know, I have long believed um, and, you know, I think growing up in New Orleans, we have a special relationship 
relationship with our meteorologists. Yes. Um, we had, you know, Margaret Orr on the show Some recently. Some people might call it your obsession. But yes. <laughs> you know, but the, these these people help guide us in our, yeah, our lives. True. And there have been so many um, weather events. Um, and they have such a great perspective on, you know, just coastal uh, flooding and hurricanes and just so many topics. Um, and so this next guest, we actually connected um, on social media. He shares great content. He sure does. Um, he does. Really impressive, um, you know, platforms that he's putting out amazing content. And he's really helped guide us through this crazy year of 2019 um, with the flooding and, it ain't and everything. Over yet. I know, it's not <laughs> over. Um, and we actually had him up on a flyover. But anyway, I'm excited to welcome to Delta Dispatches um, Steve Caparata, meteorologist with WAFB. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Steve. Thank you, guys. And let me just say right off the bat, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, we'll be doing a lot of that on the show. Um, so, Steve, you um, are at WAFB in Baton Rouge, and so you you know cover weather for the greater Baton Rouge area, but of course across Louisiana. But you're from New Orleans, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I grew up in Metairie. Uh, went to Brother Martin High School. Then- oh wait, say that again, Steve. Went where? Brother Martin, the Crusader. Oh, oh, and we sit across from a Jesuit alum here. We'll have to get into that later. We can, uh, we can, you know, remain friends. <laughs> At least, At least for the, the duration of the interview. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have the cage match later on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, little known fact, Steve, I grew up in Homa, and in Homa you catch both Baton Rouge stations and New Orleans stations. So we used to be able to watch WAFB. Young and the Restless used to come on at four in the afternoon, in case you missed it, on Channel 4 here in New Orleans. So you also reach out to the Homa coastal area as well, too. Yeah, you know, we at times we go as far down as Grand Isle. We have people watch. We've got a lot of people in Baton Rouge that have camps down at Grand Isle, and they'll actually sometimes watch us as far down as Grand Isle. So, yeah, we do cover a pretty big area. So, Steve, um, you have, you know, you worked with Bob Breck and Ken Aquan. Um, you, um, you know, have studied, uh, you have your PhD in geography, climatology from LSU. Um, you know, you've been covering hurricanes as far back as Ivan and, and, and Rita. Um, so how did you first get into meteorology? You know, for me, it's a, it's a lifelong love. Uh, one of the stories I always tell people was uh, even in second grade. So I went to St. Louis King of France in Bucktown for elementary school. And uh, my PE teacher, I had buddies in high school who reminded me of this, but even in second grade, I had a PE teacher that would ask me what the weather was going to be like that day. So we knew whether (laughs) we're going to have PE outside or not. So clearly it's just in my blood. That's so cute. That's so cute. I think Jacques, when he was little, Jacques wanted to be a meteorologist too, <laughs> but he just talked so much that he went the other direction too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somehow what took a, a wrong turn never ended up there, but I just <laughs> like talking to meteorologists instead. So, um, I mean, this has been a crazy year, 2019. I mean, there's no shortage of, of crazy years in terms of weather, but can you kind of, let's do a little bit of a look back on the flood of 2019. I mean, as I was mentioning earlier in the show, the river's finally down, but what was it like covering that flood? You know, it was, uh, I think it was a lot of clearing up. Uh, people were confused on really what all this meant. One of the things that's so confusing about river floods is we flood stage, what we call flood stage, really doesn't flood anyone in most cases because we have levees and flood walls and things like that that actually protect well above the flood stage. So that's a point of confusion. Saw a lot of that when uh, Barry was threatening, a lot of the national media was saying, you know, 
the river in Baton Rouge was already high. Now they got the storm coming, but we knew we were safe up here. So it was clearing up a lot of confusion. And I think the other thing I really hit on a lot was to me, this should, uh, the, the way we endured this flood should keep, uh, give people some added confidence in, in our levee protection or or flood protection on the river, at least. Uh, I get uh, how everyone is skeptical of it, given what happened to Katrina. But when you look at a record duration flood that just shattered all the records up and down the Mississippi, including here in South Louisiana, and that we had really very few problems, I think that should give us some added confidence. Yeah. And um, we're about to head into a break. But I mean, thankfully, we had you and others and it shows how important our our, our local meteorologists, our local news people are in those disasters. I was telling people, don't don't look at what the national yeah. media outlets are saying. Look at what, you know, Steve is saying at WAFB. Look at what Margaret's saying at WDSU. You know, look at what the Times Picayune and the Advocate are saying. And I think, you know, we're really lucky to have you all um, helping guide us and make sure that we're, you know, setting the appropriate level of anxiety. You know, we don't <laughs> want to, like, undermine any of the risks, but we also don't want to want to make sure it's accurate. So we really appreciate that. Um, Steve, we're about to head into a break. Um, but, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we're in the peak of hurricane season. You mentioned Barry and we have a lot to get to, um, but I want to make sure people go and follow you to continue to get great content and insights from you on social media. So where can people go to, to follow you on Twitter and Facebook? So on Twitter, it's at Steve WAFB. And then on Facebook, Steve Caparata WAFB. Make sure you throw that WAFB at the end. A lot of people try to hit my personal page, but the, the weather stuff, <laughs> on the the page with WAFB at the end. Awesome. Well, we'll be right back with Steve Caparata, meteorologist with WAFB. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM, always available online at deltadispatches.org. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. 
Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And it is time for the Coastal Voice of the Week. As a reminder, you can go online at any time to RestoreTheCoast.org and share your message of why Louisiana's coast is important to you, why restoring it is so vital. Uh, we've had well over a thousand responses from across the state. Bienville. <laughs> and this one is from Carmen in Labadieville. My job includes riding around airboats and monitoring the coast. Without the coast, I wouldn't have an awesome job. Carmen and Labadieville. Same. same. Yeah. I wouldn't have an awesome job. Some and you ride in a lot of airboats. Mm-hmm. Um, you monitor the coast in your own way, too. In my own way, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but just another important reminder of, like, hashtag coastal jobs and yes. the, yeah. the opportunities that are developing around this work. So, um, well, we're so excited to have Steve Caparato, meteorologist with WAFB, back on the show. Um, so, Steve, we were talking about the river flood in the first segment, but you also mentioned Barry. So, Barry was unique in a few ways. Can you, like, walk us through, you know, even though Barry didn't do kind of the extent of damage that it potentially could have. Why was Barry such a a unique and interesting storm? Yeah, there were a few things. Number one, it started out from a disturbance that was over land. We were tracking it when it was up by Missouri, and this was a real victory for the computer models in that while this disturbance was up by Missouri. They were already picking up on this potential as the system moved into the Gulf of Mexico that it might become something tropical. That was a real victory. Number two, what was a real victory was the track forecast with Barry was excellent. Now, what wasn't so good, obviously, were the rain forecasts. We had these rain forecasts indicating for a number of days leading up to landfall, 10 to 20, 10 to 25 inches of rain in spots. And obviously, for most of us that did not happen. We're thankful it didn't happen, but clearly there's still work to be done on the meteorological side. And we think there were a couple of factors that came into play. Number one, there was some drier air over land. It seemed like Barry was kind of butting up against that and it was eroding the rain as it moved inland. And then number two was wind shear. So there were strong winds blowing out of the north toward the south, toward Barry, and that just kind of held the rain down along the coast and at bay for a while. And that worked to our advantage, but uh, a lot of people went through a lot of preparation thinking we could be facing a significant flood that didn't happen. And we're understandably kind of frustrated with how those forecasts played out. And also, I mean, it was unique in terms of the timing, but also the fact that we had this high river, right, that raised some concerns. I mean, can you talk a little bit about you know, particularly maybe for the folks who are tuning in from outside of Louisiana, um, how does Louisiana flood? In a number of ways, too many ways, right? So rainfall is an issue. Uh, you guys down in New Orleans, the rainwater, when we get it, actually has to be pumped out. Most places, it naturally runs off into rivers and streams and things like that. But New Orleans, we have to mechanically pump the water out. Uh, we deal with river flooding here in South Louisiana. We deal with storm for storm surge flooding. 
flooding from tropical storms, hurricanes, and even sometimes winter storms. And sometimes we have tidal flooding. You can get strong winds out of the east or southeast, not necessarily even tied to a storm. And because we're so uh, low lying, uh, some spots barely above sea level, sitting at sea level or even below, it uh, can be a strong wind on a given day that can cause flooding. So, Steve, you know, you talked about quite a quite a few ways right there, too. But, you know, Baton Rouge experienced quite a devastating flood in 2016. I think a, a little bit surprising, right, for a non-coastal area. You you worked that storm, right? Yeah, it was uh, even for us. Uh, so in 2016, at that point, I'd been 13 years in Baton Rouge. Uh, I'd covered the aftermath of Katrina in New Orleans. And this was essentially, it's not on the scale of a Katrina, but still people up here kind of think of it as Baton Rouge's Katrina. And even people like me that work in the realm of meteorology, we just didn't really fathom or think something like that was possible up here. The scale of the flooding that we got so many areas that had never flooded before. You know, it's one thing when you look down in New Orleans where you're either below sea level uh, or barely above in most spots at, at best. But up here in Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge was originally settled because it's the first high ground as you move upriver from the Gulf of Mexico moving northward. That's why Baton Rouge was settled. So it was surprising to see the, the scope of flooding that we had. And uh, that was because the rainfall total were, were off the charts. You had some areas pick up over 30 inches of rainfall. Yeah, if I, if I remember correctly, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a tropical storm or anything like that, right? It was just some, some devastating weather that came, but still had the same elements of a named storm, you know, except for minus the people needing to get out, uh, an evacuation call, uh, but definitely in terms of recovery and people needing to, to start over again. Yeah, it's one of the things that's a little dangerous with how we name tropical system. Sometimes people don't take weather seriously uh, down here in the summer months unless it's got a name associated with it. We knew there was some heavy rain potential with this system that didn't have a name and it was still kind of tropical-like. The only reason that it didn't get a name or classification was the center was over land. You typically have to have the center over water to get the name. But um, that certainly added to the surprise factor. People, the alert level by default goes up when you've got a system with a name. But this unnamed system of August 2016 just caught so many of us off guard. So, Steve, I mean, I think there was a new LSU study that came out about this, but it seems like we're experiencing more of these extreme rainfall events. I mean, have you seen in your time um, as a meteorologist um, weather changing or becoming kind of more extreme? It's so hard to people are still trying to quantify this because it varies place to place. But what we can look at, uh, one thing we can talk about more broad terms as the atmosphere warms, as the planet warms, it can hold more water vapor. The more water vapor you have, the more potential for heavy rain. Uh, when we look at that 2016 flood, for instance, there's a measure we use in meteorology called precipitable water. And in simple terms, that's if you kind of wrung out all the moisture in the atmosphere, how much rain would it equate to? Well, the precipitable water amounts uh, back uh, when we had the August 2016 flood up around 
uh, Baton Rouge, they were record values for the date. And that's kind of indicative of just how juicy the atmosphere was, how primed it was to produce heavy rainfall. And we're seeing more days like that where these precipitable water values, just how much moisture is in the atmosphere is near or at record levels. So uh, with that, it would seem that it's more likely we're going to see more of these heavy rain events as time goes by. So, Steve, what is does that have any connection to MJO? Not necessarily. I feel like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Are you trying to impress me? Is that what that was? Yes, yes. Well, you, why don't you tell us what MJO is since, since you studied it? Yeah, okay. So, you're bringing up MJO, which is the Madden-Julian Oscillation. Uh, it gets its name from the two gentlemen that discovered it back in the 70s. Madden and Julian were their last names. Uh, it impacts weather in a number of ways around the globe. So I did research from my master's degree on kind of how it impacts tropical weather. And then for my PhD, I looked at more how it impacts winter storms in the Gulf of Mexico. But for the purposes of what we're talking about, here's how it works. The MJO is essentially you get these clusters of storms that start out in the Indian Ocean and they gradually move eastward through the Pacific and then sometimes into the Atlantic. The signal becomes weaker as they get more into our part of the world. But as these clusters of storms move eastward, not only do they impact the areas that they're moving over, but it kind of alters the weather pattern globally. It just changes things. And we've been able to establish a number of studies through the years, how that impacts weather in different parts of the world when the MJO is in different parts of the world. So what we know is as those storm clusters get into the eastern Pacific and then into the western Atlantic, that typically uh, increases the likelihood of of tropical storms and hurricanes, but in the winter months, it also can mean uh, more low pressure systems in the Gulf of Mexico. That's fascinating. Like like the like the hurricane guy we had on previously, <laughs> right? It, it's so complex and so interesting. Well, Steve, we're up against another break. We want to talk to you a little bit more about the science and tools of meteorology and, and some things like that. Do you mind sticking with this? Not at all. I'll be here. Great. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're here every Thursday on WGSO 990 AM. We'll be right back. You're on the ASPN Network. Coastal news for the pelagic-minded. Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And we're back with Steve Caparata, meteorologist with WAFB in Baton Rouge. Um, so, Steve, we have a little tradition on Delta Dispatches, which is called the fun question. So, for you, your fun <laughs> question <Real> is... <laughs> What is your favorite season? My favorite season? Wow. Um, you know, it kind of changes as you get older. But I guess growing up down here, I still like summer. You know, I, I don't Crawfish. mind too much. Crawfish season. Yeah, exactly. yeah so I, I do. I still like the summer. Although I tell you what, the older I get, I'm finding it a little tougher uh, to make it through the hot summers. Yeah, not as fun cutting the grass in the summer I and know. doing all that stuff. Snowball season. Yeah. I know. There's. I like that question because there are two ways you can go yeah. with it. You could go, St. 
Halloween season, right. you know, Festival whatever, season. the dirty coast route or yeah. the, you know, traditional route. All right. I am a big sports fan, so I'm excited about getting into football season. Yeah, yeah. it's close, so close, close. The preseason's almost over, yeah. which means the stakes are here. Yeah, they had their first college game this weekend already. <laughs> right. so, yes, All indeed. Right. Yes, indeed. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, like, tools and instruments in meteorology and I mean that has to have that must be constantly evolving and changing so I'm assuming for the better right without a doubt um, you know when you look at our satellites the the resolution that we're getting on the satellites now is uh, pretty incredible uh, with uh, I lose track of time I guess it's been up for maybe two years goes 16 was one of the latest satellites that NOAA sent up and uh, just incredible amounts of detail both in terms of the spatial resolution but also the, the time resolution, how frequently we get the images. Uh, radar has progressed through time. It used to be we had regular old radar that showed us rain. We got Doppler radar that helped us detect winds and, and thereby tornadoes. And then several years back, we, we got an update to that called dual pole radar, which just shows us more and more. So it, it's it's remarkable. Now, uh, that makes it a little bit of a challenge for us. We there's You got to have continuing ed, right? So you got to <laughs> up on all this stuff. I'd say the other thing that's uh, really progressing are computer models that help us come up with the forecast. Um, those are progressing remarkably. It takes a lot of computing power. That's one of the challenges, but uh, they're, they're getting better by the day. So, Steve, I want to shift gears a little bit. I mean, um, you and your job stand in front of a map of Louisiana every day, um, you know, and you're kind of talking about the weather. But the map behind you has changed significantly with the loss of our coast. I wanted to get your reactions to that and also how you see coastal land loss posing a risk to our state and our communities. Yeah, so one thing I think uh, as most of the country and even here in Louisiana at times when we often when you look at a map of Louisiana, it doesn't really accurately represent where we are in 2019 of how much land is is left or how much has been lost. And I think we lose sight of that because we have these political boundaries. Uh, you know, if you draw the state outline of Louisiana, it's going to look like we have a lot of land. But truth, there's a lot of that is gone. So that that often I, I find is is misleading. And uh, I, I to me, with this coastal land loss, you know, one example we've seen is uh, Al de Jean Charles, the, the Native American community down there where there's been this big relocation project. Um, you know, we're going to have to make a lot of tough decisions going forward. What places are we going to save and which ones are going to have to be sacrificed? There are going to be hard decisions that have to be made. You can't. I don't think it's feasible to save everywhere in coastal Louisiana where we have small settlements. I think those decisions are going to be have to are going to have to be made, but um, it's incredibly difficult and complex to sort that out. Yeah, you're right, Steve. I mean, you know, we have uh, certainly a fair share of challenges here. But Jacques mentioned that you did a coastal flyover with uh, one of our favorite people and favorite guests of the show, Dr. Alicia Renfro. When you did that flyover, did you see uh, did you see hope or opportunity, um, or do you really think it was it's just mostly challenges? I'd say I think it's uh, eye opening even for someone like me that's you know pretty aware of what's going. 
going on once you actually fly the stretch from New Orleans down to the mouth of the river, largely staying along the path of the river to see how thin the line is between uh, our coast and land and what's the Gulf of Mexico and and how it's indistinguishable at some points. Uh, it was still eye opening for me. Uh, yeah, I, I think there is hope uh, when you see some of these examples of what's happened down at the Wax Lake uh, Delta down there around the Atchafalaya, for instance, where uh, we almost we've built land by accident, but it gives us a good example of what can be done. And so I know you guys are looking at those two big sediment diversion projects and that those there's a lot of hope for that, that that could be sort of a game changer. And so I, I do think there's hope. It's going to take a long time. I think that's what people have to understand. These are generational and multi-generational changes that will happen in trying to recover some of this land. But I do think there's hope. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think um, it's just the perspective that you get in terms of seeing it from the air, seeing the places that have been, you know, built um, and maintained by the river. It's, it's great. So I'm glad that you were able to to join us for the opportunity. And uh, you've shared yourself. I, I've seen on social media um, images from, you know, Google Earth and satellite images showing the sediment just spilling out of the bird's foot during high river. So it kind of shows, you know, we need to do something to capture that sediment if we're going to have a sustainable future for communities here in Louisiana. So. Yeah, Jacques, I was going to mention that. So being up on the flight when the river was so high, I, I forget when we went. Was that back in early June? I think it was. Or maybe yeah, time is really challenging <laughs> this year because things are all out of whack. But I would say, yeah, it was probably late spring, early summer. So the bottom line is the river was really high. And when you get up above, you, you can see the, the muddy appearance of the sediment sitting up there. And I couldn't help but think, man, what a shame this record river flood that we're going through right now. All that sediment's going to to wakes because that's how through time the Mississippi River built land before we you know uh, built levees and flood control measures you'd have natural floods that sediment would get deposited and that would build land well if we want to have the city in New Orleans we have to have levees and flood protection and, and same up here in Baton Rouge which stops those natural floods but I still couldn't help but think man it just we lost such an opportunity with this record flood to capture some of that land building material. Well, Jacques got a beach, so he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, I, I, you mentioned it earlier, but especially in New Orleans and the surrounding area, um, you know, where we are at sea level or below, it's so vital to have the, that wetland buffer so that, you know, the water's not butting up against our levees. So, um, well, Steve, we have a few minutes left, but I do want to ask you, um, you know, what advice would you give to that person out there who wants to pursue a career in meteorologist and be, you know, the next Steve Caparata or Bob Breck or Margaret Orr. What advice would you give to me as a middle-aged person who would like to go back and study meteorology? Well, can you do math? That's the number one question. So that that actually, that weeds out a lot of people when you get to college level. A lot of people don't realize there's a lot of math. I had to have a a math minor from my undergraduate degree. And so that's, that's the part a lot of people don't like so much. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Number two, I would tell everybody,
everybody. You're speaking to a broadcast meteorologist, but understand we're, we're a small part of the meteorologists overall in the world. There are many, many other uh, tracks you can take in meteorology, the National Weather Service, their private companies. You can work for NASA, all these different opportunities. So uh, don't just think it's about TV if, you, if you're thinking about getting into meteorology. There, there are a lot of other routes to go. Look, I was a shy kid growing up. I, I never thought I'd be where I am. But 20 years later, now I'm I'm kind of stuck in it. I enjoy it. But this is not what I expected. I, I loved meteorology. I didn't necessarily think I'd end up in TV, but here I am. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us on Delta Dispatches. You know, I know we're in the peak of hurricane season and you're very busy, so we're going to let you go. But um, one more time, where can people go to follow you for great coverage um, now and in the future? So on Twitter, at Steve WAFB, and uh, on Facebook, especially if we get a tropical system, I do update Steve Caparata, WAFB. One point I'll mention before we wrap up, September is our peak month for tropical hits here in Louisiana. So we're hoping, you know, that, um, you know, we have a calm and quiet season, but that's a good reminder. We always have to stay vigilant. So thank you so much, Steve. I'm going to appreciate all of your work. And I'm not good at math, so I'll just continue to be a fan of meteorologists (laughs) as opposed to one myself. But thanks again for for, uh, joining us. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll be right back on Delta Dispatches. From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Simone Laws with Restore or Retreat. And I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. Welcome back. Yeah, that was a great conversation. It was. Steve's very, very intriguing guy. Very interesting. Well, I have the coastal stat of the week. This week's statistic is 72% of Louisiana voters statewide believe that coastal land loss will directly impact them in five years. 57% believe that that it will impact them this year. And that's a statewide number. Statewide number. And that's a fact. We um, were part of a lot of discussions last week centered around one of our favorite places to go, Davis Pond. Uh, So we dragged in our resident Davis Pond expert. Welcome to Delta Dispatch's David Muth. Good to be here. Tell us your title again. Uh, I'm the director for Gulf Restoration for the National Wildlife Federation. Um, And you also are um, primary field trip director when we go out to Davis Pond. I've been going out in that uh, portion of the Barataria Basin since I went to work for the National Park Service, uh, Jean Lafitte uh, National Historical Park and Preserve back in the early 1980s. So I've uh, been, you know, looking at that area for uh, close to 40 years. So, David, um, in a relatively short amount of time, um, you know, that area has changed pretty significantly. Can you paint the picture for what that area looked like when you first started going out and what does it look like today? Yeah, so that area was um, uh, uh, an area of freshwater marsh, which is, uh, there's a huge band of that kind of marsh in the upper Barataria Basin. It's what we call flotant or floating marsh. And it's essentially peat marsh that in many 
places and times actually detaches from uh, the soils underneath and floats. Uh, and that was what much of Davis Pond was uh, before the opening of the diversion. So it's in the center of the basin, right? You have this now big open bottom. You have Lake Salvador, right? And then you, which is gigantic. And then you have Lake Katawachi. And this is just a little way, little line that was cut through the levee into this outfall area before you get to Lake Katawachi. So tell us how that outfall area in particular has changed. Well, the, the outfall area was um, uh, f- full of big open uh, marsh ponds. Most of the mar- marsh was flotant, and there were some areas uh, where there were still remnants of bald cypress trees growing on old subsided ridges. Uh, that was how it was uh, prior to the opening. But now that area has been transformed. Uh, so much clay, uh, the you know, the fine sediment that the river carries has accumulated in those marshes that they're no longer flotant, that they're now uh, solid marsh. And in areas where the, the clay has built up to a sufficient elevation, you're starting to see trees grow. Again, that marsh wouldn't support a tree, much less a person, prior to this. In addition, the open areas are filling in with sediment, so that what used to be water one, two, three feet deep is now solid ground. So, David, you mentioned a diversion. Um, So I want to kind of set the record straight. Davis Pond and Carnarvon are different from the diversions that are being proposed in the state's coastal master plan to build and maintain land. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between the existing freshwater diversions and the proposed sediment diversions to build and maintain land in Louisiana? Sure. So if you if you look at the Mississippi River, um, it carries sediment of various sizes, to put it simply, sands, which are big grains, heavy sediment, down to the finest uh, uh, clays, which uh, the the grains in a clay. Those fine grains are only carried at the top of the water column. So the Mississippi River is very deep. Uh, But um, the Davis Pond Diversion was designed to move fresh water out of the river into the Barataria Basin to offset increasing salinities that had been increasing for 100 years prior to its opening. So it only moves, the water can't help itself, it's going to move sediment, but it only moves the finest clays. Whereas what the state is now designing uh, taps deep into the water column so that it picks up heavier sediment. Silts and especially those sands that sit on the bottom in sandbars, except when the river's in flood. So there was a good article in the Home Courier by Hallie Parker talking about um, this Davis Pond example. I mean, literally Davis Pond takes the light stuff at the top and diversions will go are, are inverted and will go much deeper into that and yep. has a totally different purpose, even though we are seeing some benefits from freshwater. Right. And uh, you can't forget that Davis Pond is working in its original purpose, which is to offset uh, the increasing salinities. When I went to work um, uh, in the upper Barataria Basin in the early 1980s, we were seeing marsh converting from fresh marsh into brackish marsh. There were species starting to show up that uh, had prior to that been 15 or 20 years to the south. So those, those downstream changes that it was meant to do are happening 
for the positive benefit, but they also have this side effect that we're also building and strengthening land. Yeah, when, when we went out in the spring this year, I heard them say that um, when you know we usually take airboats out there, that they have to go run the day before to make sure that they can still ride the channels or the previous route that we had taken because things change out there so quickly. One, one thing I'd like for you to describe for people, if you can, when we go out there, it's just full of life. I, I don't know how else to say it. it. Everything is so green, but the birds and the creatures and the critters talk about how critical of a habitat that is. Well, I, the, the beauty of a delta is that it's a cycle. So um, during high water, when the river's high and water is moving out, you have uh tremendous amounts of water and nutrients and sediments coming out, which feed the system. But in every year, the water eventually drops, uh, uh, sediment drops out of the water, the water clears up, um, the fish that are being fed by the system become visible to birds. So birds move in and begin uh, to take advantage fish move in and take advantage, reptiles move in and take advantage. Um, it's a cycle. And so uh, what you see in a given year is what had been a very static landscape. It was the same year round. Because of the cycle of the river, because of the cycle of flooding, you go through a whole different uh, set of ecological processes that bring in tremendous amounts of wildlife. And when that river drops, as it is doing right now, the density of birds and alligators and uh, 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 mammals using it just goes way up. So the wildlife that you would see today at Davis Pond may be different from the wildlife you would have seen 40 years ago? It's, it's different uh, to some extent in the species composition, but more importantly in the total number of creatures that are taking advantage of it. Like homo sapiens that are out there fishing all the time when we go out there, right? So Or hunting I, in the winter. Right, hunting in the winter. That's a very good point. I don't I don't want to switch gears too much, but we've also seen recently some very strong images related to Bonnie Carey, right? And and just to be clear, the Bonnie Carey is a blunt flood protection instrument, right? I mean, it's not even in the lane of a freshwater or a sediment diversion, although it does have similar, you know, benefits in the fact that it, you know, all this sand dropped out, right? But I mean, again, totally different category of a project. Totally different category. Again, it's it's to protect uh, all of the people in the downriver parishes. Um, so, uh, Jefferson, Orleans, St. Charles, St. Bernard, Plaquemines. Um, there, there are, you know, over a million people living along the river. And the purpose of that is, is to take the strain off of the levees on the lowermost river. Uh, again, while it is a tremendous amount of water and sediment that move out in a very short time in a very unnatural way, the system still responds in exactly the way that I've described. As the water goes down, you're going to start seeing productivity shoot upward. You're going to start seeing shrimp production. You're going to start seeing waterfowl production. You're going to start seeing the trap move back into areas that were very fresh to take advantage of all the new fish and shrimp that are in there. We see it every time the spillway opens. It, it causes a change, 
but the system responds because the system is built on this cycle of river flooding followed by uh, low water. Thank you so much, David Muth. And thank you to Steve Caparata. Another great show. Happy Labor Day, everyone. Um, hope you enjoy the long weekend and we will be back next week. Delta Dispatches. Dispatches.